0: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Steven Siegel, your host, and I'm delighted today to have Dr. Jennifer Carroll join us to talk about her new book. It's called Narcomania, or Narcomania, Drugs, HIV, and Citizenship in Ukraine. This is a book that was published in 2019 by Cornell University Press. Welcome. Uh, Jennifer, to our podcast today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, So a little bit about uh, Dr. Carroll. She is a medical anthropologist, a research scientist, and she earned her PhD in cultural anthropology and her master's in public health in epidemiology at the University of Washington. Professor Carroll currently holds appointments. She is an assistant professor of anthropology at Elon University in North Carolina, and also an adjunct assistant professor of medicine at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Dr. Carroll has been conducting long-term ethnographic research in Ukraine since 2007. We'll talk a lot about Ukraine, during which time she's investigated the social, cultural, and political impacts of internationally funded programs offering life-saving evidence-based medications to Ukrainians living with opioid use disorder. Professor Carroll was living in Kiev and unwittingly became an eyewitness to Ukraine's revolution of dignity, which began in the fall of 2013 and continued through the spring of 2014, kick-starting the ousting of ex-president Viktor Yanukovych, the Russian occupation of Crimea, and the beginnings of Russia's war with Ukraine in the country's eastern regions. Dr. Carroll has contributed research on the U.S.'s own opioid overdose epidemic, the changing illicit drug market strategies for the reduction of overdose risk, and the effect of law enforcement actions on the severity severity of overdose risk. Uh, And in addition to all of her academic work, which is very, really wide ranging, um, Professor Carroll serves as a scientific advisor to the CDC, so the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, and prevention's overdose response strategy, and this, uh, which you'll talk about, is a novel effort to reduce opioid overdose deaths through interagency collaboration and community-based interventions. So, I want to start with a question about you. Yeah. Um, in in reading this book, Jennifer, I I see it um, as as a foray into Ukraine. This is a this is an adventure. Um, and it reads sometimes like a memoir, so there are so many personal experiences and contexts here. Um, how did you come to be interested in the the subject of medical anthropology and in Ukraine? Is there is there a background
1: story to that? There is. Um, so so yeah, I think it is a very very personal book. Um, I, I'm not a very good writer unless I'm a very personal writer. Um, I came to terms with the fact that I'm a very sort of like emotional and transparent author. Uh, whatever my my medium or or content may be a long time ago. But um, but yeah, so actually one of the reasons that I started working in Ukraine to begin with, it was a few um, elements of serendipity that really came together. Um, I did my undergraduate research at Reed College where Alexandra Ritzak um, is a sociology professor. Um, and she was actually one of my um, earliest teachers. I took sociology from social movements with her. I still have the same copy of Piven and Cloward that we read um, in her classroom back in like 1999 um, in, my, in my office right now, same same bad highlighting and everything. And when I had graduated and was still hanging around Portland, um, as, as many of us are wont to do, she spent time as an elections observer in 2004 in ukraine and returned to portland and gave a public talk at the college on the orange revolution and that was in 2000 either late 2004 or early 2005 um and i went to that just because i liked her so much i was like heck yeah alex is doing something really interesting and i'm underemployed so let's definitely go and spend some time doing that <laughs> and um and that was my very very first introduction to all of these names that were at the time you know so foreign and unknown to me and now uh you know back of the tongue sort of thing, like, you know, Timoshenko and, and Yanukovych and Yushchenko. And um, I, it, Ukraine kind of became a place that suddenly had um, an image in my head, unlike literally anywhere else um, that I, other than basically that one town in France that I went to on a high school trip. And, uh, and so in 2006, I began applying to graduate programs and had the opportunity, which I'm still so grateful for, to do a master's degree in sociology at Central European University um, at its original home in Budapest, which was awesome. I cannot I cannot like overstate how fantastic that program was and how awesome it is, and I just highly recommend it to anyone, but they gave us an opportunity to do... Um, Uh, research. right? It was a a kind of a sprint. It was a one-year master's program, but we were given just enough time and just enough money to get ourselves into a lot of trouble at the end of the year and then hope to turn a a thesis out of it. Uh, So I had been a harm reductionist long before I was really an anthropologist, um, which is to say that uh, through some of the community work that I was doing in Portland after graduation, like I wrote my bachelor's thesis on the WTO protests. And I was interested in a lot of homeless advocacy stuff and working in um, youth shelters. And and uh, I was actually a youth minister <laughs> for a good chunk of time there. And there, one of the places that I was working at, spending time at was um, a really, really wonderful organization that's worthy of all your money called Outside In in Portland, Oregon, and they were running a syringe exchange. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of that concept. And someone explain to me how it worked. And I had like that emoji with like the mushroom cloud coming out of your forehead. Like it really, really threw me out of some of my um, hegemonic idea. It was that real like jolt sort of thing, right? Um, That uh, in a a very, very early essay about understanding biomedicine as a culture, Lorna Rhodes talks about us needing a, a jolt to kind of understand how science could be cultural. And that was my jolt for, oh, you're telling me that all of these harms and like infectious disease and overdose and and sepsis. And this is all like structurally produced. And if we just give people sterile equipment, we don't have to have any of that. And I was sold, like completely completely sold. So I knew I wanted to explore those sorts of things with the tools of social science. Um, And, uh, you know, I tell my students now, that there's two kinds of academics in the world. There are the academics who will admit openly that they picked up a research project because they were forced to Google something and <laughs> Like We've all done it at some point. And so when I was trying oh. to apply to uh, um, uh, this program in Hungary, I, I literally Googled like drug use, HIV Europe. I was like, "Where can I do a program?" and and Ukraine came up because it was there was a lot of UNAIDS publications about what we, what we now know to be overestimations of the population prevalence, and so I, um, you know, probably old, oversold myself a little bit on my CEU application and got accepted and was like, "All right, this is I guess this is what we're going to do." Um, and about a year later, I was spending um, my days at a syringe exchange in Odessa trying to figure out how to ask the marshutka driver to stop and let me off, and I got there every day.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. I want to, I, I want to back up a little bit and talk yeah. about har- harm reduction. So I'm a historian by training and I am not a, an anthropologist or an ethnographer. So could you tell our, our audience and me what harm reduction is and how it works, mm-hmm. particularly in Ukraine So, I I, I think one of the things I really love about your book is your reliance on trust. In fact, this is your very first sentence when you talk about your ethnographic research. Mm -hmm. So, how, I mean, how, what is harm reduction? And then, how do you go about all of the interviews that you do Mm -hmm. in, in order to broker this kind of policy?
1: Right. So harm reduction in a really, really broad sense is something that in public health we call secondary or tertiary prevention. So like, you know, primary prevention is would be like no one ever breaks the speed limit. Um, Tertiary prevention would be like if you're going to break the speed limit, we're going to make it less likely for you to get into a wreck when you do that by having better roads, better tires, better steering, all of that, you know, tertiary prevention is okay. If the bad thing has happened, can we make it less damaging? So if you're going to exceed the speed limit, if you are going to get into an accident, can we reduce your risk by putting in seatbelts, airbags, crash panels, all those sorts of things. So it's really a, a structural injury prevention framework. Um, That's the broad sense. Most of the time, though, when we talk about harm reduction, the term really emerges out of um, community work um, and community organizing, grassroots organizing around the health and social concerns of people who use drugs. Um, And so the kinds of activities that typically fall under the label of harm reduction would be like syringe access programs, naloxone distribution, uh, drug checking, um, passing out fentanyl test strips so people can learn whether or not the drugs they purchased are contaminated with strong opioids that they did not expect nor want to be there. Um, And broadly, harm reduction is is rooted in two, I think, really, really key philosophical ideas. Um, The first one is personal autonomy, which is that if you know you have the right to make the choices that you want for yourself um, and to have the tools available to you to live the best life possible. And so we acknowledge this truth in so many facets of our lives, like um, if you have a personal goal, then you should have, you know the capacity to, um, you know, seek the supports. Like for example, I have terrible, terrible allergies, and this past year I ended up going through allergy shots for the first time, which was miraculous and life changing. And anyone should do it if they if they want to. But you know, I tried a few different things. I tried some inhalable steroids. I tried working on that. I, I went through a few things, and finally, I was like, I just really want this. This is what I need to live a better quality life where I can, you know, breathe in my own backyard. Um, so harm reduction just tries to connect people with those tools, except that those tools are usually things that are considered illegal, um, criminalized as drug paraphernalia. And the reason why we focus so much on that need for autonomy in the world of, um, you know, drug user community and drug user health is because the second tenet of harm reduction is that the vast majority, and this is fundamentally true, I think this is not neither a controversial statement nor um, nor a, a one that can really be contradicted in any reasonable way, The vast majority of the harms that we associate with substance use so, um, injury, excuse me, infection, overdose, um, infectious disease these are all really structurally driven. Right? We have individuals who are living right. with diabetes, who interact with the exact same technology every single day, and they don't suffer these kind of harms. We have people who are on long-term opioid treatment for chronic pain or for other issues or for peripheral neuropathy, and and they are not dying in drugs. So so why is it that we're allowing these folks to die in drugs the same way that we had so much alcohol poisoning during prohibition? Those were deaths that were created by a policy that wouldn't allow for consumer protections around that particular issue so if you are able to do some of these things to provide people with help ideally i would love to see you know an actually regulated drug market but i think that's a different podcast but that's what harm reduction is and so no 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 i i want to i, 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 I,
0: I want to get you on that <laughs> okay. point this is going to be our gotcha moment oh, so okay. keep, just, well, yes just keep going
1: <laughs> so, so this is i mean yeah. So, I mean, in Ukraine, they're doing a lot of the same thing. The drug market is very different in Ukraine. Drug habits are very different in Ukraine. It's it's a different culture. Um, and so, you know, the same thing that led um, my, my once host mom in Kiev to come to a Whole Foods in Seattle and see a tiny like two ounce Spice Island jar of poppy seeds and die laughing. Like, what are you supposed to do with that? She's like, you might as well sell two tablespoons of flour at a time. Right. You know, there's totally different orientations to, to everything, all the material culture. Um, so it doesn't look quite like the U.S., so... The structural risks that people face are different. Um, And so a lot of the same tools are at use there. You still have um, syringe access programs that will distribute clean materials and collect um, used materials. You still have um, medication-assisted treatment, which is an evidence-based um, medication for treating opioid use disorder that reduces all sorts of health outcomes, um, reduces mortality, really, really evidence-based effective treatment. Um, but it's responding to a different structural environment and a, and a different culture. And that's why okay. I was so profoundly interested in seeing how these programs that, to be fair, were invented by people who use drugs in places like um, uh, uh Europe, um, but really got picked up and developed more so on the West coast of North America, like Vancouver, San Francisco, those sorts of places. And, and also a bit in New York and DC, like, how does that translate to a place like Chirk Right. Right. And that,
0: and that's, that's a perfect lead into my next question, because Mm -hmm. I I want to talk about the global fund. So you write about this a lot in your book and you write about the work of anthropologists who are working really throughout the world in in what might be designated, and I put this in scare quotes, resource poor regions of the world, right? Mm-hmm. So what what is your experience and then what is your critique of the way global health efforts operated in Ukraine? And I guess you could go at least back to the AIDS crisis, but, but maybe even uh-huh. before that. So what, what is the argument in your book and, and how did you come to know about everything you know, really, about mm-hmm. the, the Global Fund and, and how that operates.
1: Right. So the Global Fund is um, an international fund, like not not wildly dissimilar in concept from like, you know, the World Bank or, or the IMF. Obviously, different goals, different policies, different leadership, but it's a, a giant pot of money that, that wealthier countries ante into and then divvy up through their own mechanisms in order to support certain projects or programs in recipient countries. Um, for the Global Fund, actually, the full name is the Global Fund to Prevent, um, oh, I always get them out of order, but it's tuberculosis, malaria, um, and HIV AIDS. Um, and they basically fund programs that, do, that target those three particular endemic diseases across different parts of the world. Um, and so what kinds of programs get funded really depend on where you are. Um, Ukraine has been one of the largest global fund recipients uh, for a very long time in order to tackle their uh, HIV epidemic. The Ukrainian HIV epidemic is very, very interesting. Um, There are certainly parts of the world where the general population experiences a higher endemic HIV rate than exists in Ukraine by, by several times, sometimes by orders of magnitude. So it is certainly not um, the most severe HIV epidemic um, or the most urgent HIV epidemic in the world all told, but it is one of the most unique ones because even though this has started to change in recent years, I believe about three or four years ago, this finally flipped. But for the longest time, the HIV epidemic in Ukraine was primarily driven by drug use. Whereas in the rest of the world, while, you know, the, the, and then this is part of that structural thing, right? It's not just the syringe. It's not like things are manufactured with HIV in them. It's the fact that people are forced to reuse them because they can't access this like 10 cent piece of equipment because we put weird, prescription restrictions on them and things like that. But the, the reuse of those materials and the passing of contaminated blood through the, that reuse um, has definitely been a, an HIV risk um, within places where that's an endemic disease for a long time. Um, but, but usually in most parts of the world, even though that is a factor, it's primarily driven by sexual contact. And in Ukraine, that was not the case. Right. Uh, and so that I believe a few years ago, sexual contact finally overtook um, uh, substance use or injection drug use as the primary driver of new infection. Um, but that took quite a while. It took a couple decades, literally, for, for sexual contact to catch up. So there are a number of different epidemiologic studies trying to estimate what HIV looks like in Ukraine. The population prevalence is about 0.8%, which sounds very, very low. But if you think about like almost one in 100 people that's actually extraordinarily high, especially compared to our rates in the United States um, in the general population among people who use drugs, it's hard to know, um, because it's you know that's that public health program of like, what's your denominator? Um, what what population are you actually representing? We cannot know who every person who uses drugs is, uh, but we can we can estimate better and better. And so the best estimation I've seen so far is between twenty two and twenty five percent prevalence among people who use drugs, certainly much, much higher in urban areas. Um, sometimes. Wow. Astonishingly that, high intervention
0: that's, that's that's significant. And it's is that just enormous. is that just Ukraine, or are you able to compare that to other countries in post Soviet space, or what are you, what are your comparisons in that case?
1: Yeah, so that's just Ukraine. Ukraine really stands out among um, Eastern European countries with with that particular rate. Although, given some of the new health policies that Viktor Orbán has been passing and the shutting down of a lot of the harm reduction programs there, I would say that Hungary is really setting itself up to give Ukraine a run for its money. But um but as far as the Eastern European states go, U- Ukraine is unique in that matter. There are places where there are um emergent HIV epidemics or or endemic HIV um situations that have been studied, uh like in some of the Caucasus and some of the um like Central Asian regions of the former Soviet sphere. And and those those epidemics are comparable in that there are perhaps legacy systems or legacy morals or values that may have in some way shaped the policy or the systems that exist there. But, but, you know, I'm also not going to tell you that like drug use in Kyrgyzstan and drug use in Ukraine are, are also, I mean, those are two wildly different places with two wildly different cultures and material cultures. So.
0: Right. So there, there's so there's so much that I wanna come back to and, and I, I have to ask you eventually about Ulana Suprun and the Ministry of Health and how yes. how much has changed because I th- that is just so significant by the time yes. we get to twenty sixteen. So let's hold off on that. Okay. I, I want I want to talk about I your field tell you that
1: real- We just adopted a cat and we named her Ulana Suprun. So that's my okay. Oh, okay. About uh, well then,
0: then the f- feline iconography is <laughs> yes. perfect right? Yes, <laughs> Fewer statues to Shevchenko and more Ooh. cats named after ministers of health. That, that, that would be a, a great shift in, in Ukrainian history. Good fight.
1: Um,
0: so let's talk about your field research and what, what led you to uncover some of these cultural and social constructions of, of addiction, what you call in the book addiction imaginaries. Um, I, I certainly think and agree with you that this has a geopolitical component. But I want to backtrack a little bit because I think your field research is is, um, so significant between, correct me if I'm wrong, 2007 and 2013 or 14. Was this the time that you spent in Ukraine? And where did you go? And for our audience, what, what did you do while you were there?
1: Yeah, so 2007 was when I was able to do my my very first master's work in um, Odessa. I there's actually a syringe exchange that I'm not sure is still operational. Um, quite possibly, like many organizations, they changed their not, their name in the intervening period. Uh, but it was it was fabulous. I got to spend several weeks meeting folks um, who work there, folks who are. Um, like professional staff coming out of university and hoping to sort of do public health, social work kind of kind of work, met people who were, um, I guess you would call them like successes of the program who had gone on to become outreach workers. And one of the interesting things about that point is that the very, very first pilot programs to test medication assisted treatment. So those medications I was talking about, um, Americans um, or North Americans might be familiar with the medications methadone and buprenorphine, um, more commonly called Suboxone or Subutex. Those are the two medications that are really, really effective at helping people control out of control substance use, reduce death, reduce infection. They're they're enormously helpful. So they were just starting to pilot this. So I got to meet folks who were basically going to one of Ukraine's very first methadone clinics in in the city center in Odessa. Um, it was a, a wonderful entree into how they do this work, um, what local cultures are like, talking about what's up with the cops, what's what's what role do the pharmacies play, and just really kind of getting my feet wet. Um, Years later, in 2010, I was able to return um, through funding from the American Councils for International Education. I actually did uh, Ukrainian tutoring um, in Kiev, uh, like three hours a day for about, um, I think, six weeks while I was there and then stayed a lot longer and did a lot more pilot research gearing up for my dissertation work. And that was when I I visited Odessa again. I visited Charkhase for the first time, um, interviewed a lot of folks in Kiev, Gained contacts at an organization that's now called the Public Health Alliance in Ukraine that for a long time was the primary recipient of the Global Fund grant to Ukraine to fight HIV, not the Ministry of Health. I think that was a really, really interesting part of this whole story, but they were essentially um, through their own internal micro grant and funding system supporting all of the methadone and syringe exchange programs in Ukraine for a very, very long time. This, this little group that was like in an office behind the Aromakava in, in Kiev. Um And I think. Well, they what, sad, like, sorry. What, what was their yeah.
0: funding structure? Was it the ministry of internal affairs or. or no, what no, was no, no. It? This
1: is an interesting thing. So, so it, ideally the global fund wants to give money to governments, right? Because mm-hmm. it's a, it's a largely you know i get like triple scare quotes but sort of like western northern wealthy country conglomeration that comes together to um, ante up all of that money and so they're absolutely interested in investing in in states and and not in like civil society but for a long time the ministry of health was not actually um spending or disbursing any of the money that it had received they received like the the first chunk of cash from their original global fund grant in the early 2000s and were spending it granted as we've just established that was not in Ukraine at the time but discussing these events with people who were and who were involved in harm reduction work in Ukraine, the sort of general yeah. consensus or conventional wisdom that I picked up from folks was that the the ministry wasn't spending any money because it was so well monitored and they had to do such reporting that they couldn't figure out how to like skim off the top as it went out the door. So it just uh. didn't move. Right. So uh, that, that, make, that makes sense. That makes yeah. perfect
0: Ukrainian sense, too. <laughs> Doesn't yes. it?
1: Right. So um, so what the Global Fund did is they made the kind of extraordinary move to uh, to disenfranchise the Ministry of Health from their funding structure. And they found this little group. Um, at the time, um, they were called the uh, International HIV/AIDS Alliance in Ukraine. They had just broken off from another international group and become independent. Um, I would define them, and at that time, and I mean this in the most complimentary of ways, as the scrappiest group of just like wildly talented people who are like, "Give me a card table and a folding chair, and it's an office. Crack your knuckles. We're going to do this, right?" And <laughs> they, they pulled themselves up buy their boot straight, like so fast. I mean, they basically had like an amount of money that breaks less well-organized groups um, dropped on them overnight, like tens of millions of dollars. And I think they did an extraordinary job. Um, I went there and like met folks who, uh, you know, not only had, work history with like the world bank and lots of really cool things, but like people who had earned their master's of public health in the U S who had left Ukraine because that kind of graduate program doesn't even exist. They're trained and then come back to run this thing. Um, a, a ton of the young workers that I met there while I was doing my dissertation research have been snatched up by like Hopkins PhD programs, um, things like that. But they, they were basically running all of the MAT and, and, uh, harm reduction programs in Ukraine out of a little office, um, in Kyiv. Yeah. Or
0: and, and let's, talk, let's talk about that empirically, because I, I am very curious, um, mm-hmm. and you write about this in chapter two, about the clinicians and physicians that you ended up interviewing. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you write in chapter two, and I love this sentence, uh, you say, most Ukrainian clinicians whom I interviewed considered many Ministry of Health rules to be deliberately written to be impossible to follow. Mm -hmm. So what, I mean, in your experience, when you have earned the trust of many of these very dedicated people, Mm -hmm. what, what then are your impressions in the clinics themselves? And I I mean, there's a kind of before and an after, right? So you're Mm -hmm. starting in 2007, you go back in 2010. Mm -hmm. There's also the Maidan period when you're there, as you say, as the unwitting witness to all of these tumultuous changes with the revolution mm-hmm. and the revolution of dignity. So, I mean, my question is really an empirical one. When you start interviewing people, can you paint a portrait of these clinics and yeah. the people who are, who are working
1: there for us? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this feeds in well from the last question too, which is when I was, you know, 2007, just kind of getting my feet wet, figuring out how stuff worked. 2010, really just meeting uh, like nonprofit folks, trying to figure out the structure of how they, I mean, I met a lot of like, Path staff in Ukraine. A lot of Peace Corps and PEPFAR folks in Ukraine, um, and and kind of got that grounding. And then in 2012, I went back to actually do my dissertation research. And with the exception of a three month stint back in the U.S. in early um, 2013 due to degree progress slash visa issues, um, I, I was there through March of 2014. So basically fall of 2012 through March of 2014. And that's where the bulk of the research with clinicians and um, and with people seeking health services was really because I wanted to recognize a lot of these folks as very harried, um, over-researched, carrying too much research burden. And I really didn't want to start traipsing into these people's lives and being that person with the accent who doesn't know the right terminology for things, asking dumb questions, unless I felt like I really had a, a very good reason to do so. So that work started happening in 2012. And these clinics, um, actually, one of the very, very first times I got to do a lot of this research was when I uh, met uh, a young fellow um, who was working with a uh, an AIDS, HIV AIDS, um, like nonprofit in in Kiev, and he was doing a lot of technical assistance. So he was going around um, from clinic to clinic all across the, the the country, trying to encourage folks to integrate MAT and HIV programs in the clinic. Of like, don't even make people walk down the hall; just have them have them together, get together, organize something. And helping them kind of professionalize their books, especially if they were nonprofit, not narcology clinics, but like nonprofit syringe access programs and things like that. And so I had um, the incredible privilege of being able to. Travel all around Ukraine with him, um, and this is sort of the the, the chapter of where I, I explain Platskart to people who do not know what Platskart is, which I feel is an absolutely essential piece of information to understand uh, part of Ukrainian culture. But that came out of traveling around the country with him and meeting um, clinicians um, everywhere, from you know Kherson to um, uh, Stry and Luhansk Oblast, um, all the way out to uh, uh, Kharkiv at one point and. These clinics were—I don't know—I feel like they, they were a lot of times the same buildings that have been around since Soviet period. Um, there's that very specific, supposed to be calming, but is really sort of disconcerting pea green that everything is painted in. But a lot of them were also located in rural areas, um, places with large courtyards. Many of the MAT programs we visited were also in tuberculosis hospitals, which were historically designed to have big outdoor spaces so that people could you know, the idea is get get fresh air, but also it has the secondary benefit of reducing disease transmission. If you are outside, that's the safest place to be if you're near someone with active tuberculosis. And so they were really, really lovely places that just showed the natural beauty of Ukraine um, in a way that, um, that you know, on, only untended parks and forests can, can really do. Um, and they were, for the large part, really, really lovely places. I did go to a few clinics where um, folks were under staffed or underpaid or the, just the general malaise of police harassment and economic depression were really, really weighing on people. But for the most part, I, I loved this work. Um, I, people often ask me, we have stereotypes about drug use that are very pernicious. And so I'll frequently have someone ask a question that's kind of couched in like, Ooh, you were in these like, you know, trenches of really hardcore urban research. And I was like, no man, I spent all day like eating cookies and petting cats and like, <laughs> talking to folks about their kids and and like, yeah. I, like really, really, really getting schooled and backgammon by folks who were like, dude, I was in prison for 10 years. I'm gonna kick your butt. Like this is sit down, you know. Um and and they were just they were lovely, lovely places where people are frustrated and you know are are extremely yeah well-versed in exactly what social structures are preventing them from getting ahead um, and and are usually very eager to talk about it. And um, I've said for a long time, it's usually some of the easiest work I've ever done because you have people who are very, very straightforwardly discriminated against, people who have very simple needs, have those very simple needs sweepingly denied, usually by public health or government policy or just sheer stigma, um and as a result they have a lot of time to sit around the courtyard and and just sort of reflect on that and very few people who are willing to listen to them and take them seriously so i have hours of interviews in which i didn't even get a word in edgewise yeah i and and i want to talk
0: to you about that stigmatization Mm -hmm. you have these wonderful passages in the book where you talk about people playing backham and and you were wondering as an outsider Mm -hmm. if i can put words in your mouth why they're playing backham because maybe they were in in prison playing backgammon or right. something, right? That,
1: that was the advice I was getting. I was like, why is everyone play backgammon all the time? And they're like, "They dude, everyone here was in prison. That's all you yeah. do in prison is
0: play backgammon. And, 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 and that's really my question. So the stigmatization that follows of these addiction communities, mm-hmm. uh, you build off this to develop a thesis about addiction imaginaries. But there's, there's also a, a larger political context, which you then begin experiencing during Euromaidan. in which drug addicts are explained away on several sides of the political divide, right? Mm -hmm. So can you get into that a little bit? I mean, on the one hand, we're talking about the empirical experience of studying epidemics. It might be Mm -hmm. heroin, it might be opioids, it might be the the history of HIV AIDS. But there's there's almost a turning point I see in your book where then the protests start Mm -hmm. and you begin thinking about this in in on a different level, the the, the zombification, if you will, uh-huh. of the Ukrainian public, and then yes. how and how in public discourse addicts, whether or not they are actual addicts, get described as as zombies, as people uh-huh. who are who are not in control of their will. Um, so, how how do you get to that point, and then how do you draw your conclusions after living through those those tumultuous events?
1: Yeah, so the the beginning of Yeramaydan was was really something, um, and for me as an ethnographer, like, I don't even know how to begin talking about the way in which our organization, especially in the United States, of having ethical review from institutional review boards, like cannot possibly live up to what, what we experienced in this place. Um, in fact, a friend of mine, um, Emily Channel Justice um, at, who's now uh, working at the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute. She was also at Yoro Maidan and wrote this um, really wonderful um, essay for a AAA newsletter a few years ago about how she came home. And this was after her informants who were uh, radical left student organizations were, uh, assaulted, were stalked, um, like people having to like, change license plates and change phone numbers, were subject to extraordinary violence, and just present at Maidan where police were literally shooting people, um, you know, aiming for their eyes. It, it was terrible. And she came home and had to do her final like IRB uh, closeout report. And it was like, were your subjects um, uh, exposed to any sort of adverse events? And she was like, what? <laughs> do of I course. even. Like, yeah. like, like you are, you aren't ready. Like you can't handle the truth, you know. Um, but I, so I was living actually very, very close um, to uh, to the center to Maidan. For anyone who's familiar with Kiev, my my stop was um, Piska. and so I was within walking distance of what was happening, and also had the. Um, the privilege of knowing a lot of local folks who I just, you know, like the folks who I'd go out with for beer, who like weren't part of my research, but had become friends in Kiev, who were also um, very deeply involved in what was happening, very deeply committed to what was happening. And then in addition to that, a lot of the folks that I had relied upon um, in, in the field, we kind of call them key informants, but really they're folks who we just like can never pay back for their kindness who have chosen to help us connect to local clinics. And um, I had one woman who helped me make a lot of phone calls because my Ukrainian is really good, but my capacity to sweet talk over the phone is limited. Um, and so she, she helped me out with a lot of that coordination work. Those folks started coming from the regions into Kiev. So so instead of me leaving Kiev and where my kind of home base was and going into the regions on a weekly basis to meet people and do data collection, they started coming into Kiev and giving me a call and being like, hey, there's a show trial happening. Like Victor Smalley is having a hearing, bring your camera. We know you're an ethnographer. Come document these different things. Um, and so while I was there, um, one of the things that um, really, really became clear to me was how much there was a discourse around establishing what the sort of ideal Ukraine is. I feel like that's not a very, um, you know, very deep (laughs) observation about Euromaidan. That was the whole point. is like, what is Ukraine in this point? But because of everything that we know about how social identity is formed, about how much of our identity is organized around opposition, around otherness, um, these are insights that we get from... The anthropology of citizenship um, from Benedict Anderson's work on imagined communities. Honestly, even critical race theory like tells us that it, time and time and time again, whenever human beings have an opportunity to define themselves, they tend to do it through differentiation, right? To be like we have created an other, and we we are who we are because we're not. That and that in Euromaidan kept getting defined in very very specific ways, and you're right that like the everything the zombirovani was like these things yeah. at the Berkut or at the Titushki or at the you know anti-Maidan protesters. Pe- um, people not, coming
0: from Don from Donbass were described yeah, that uh, yeah, very very commonly, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And um, and people who were uh, sort of and, and it was both sides, right? So like anti-Maidaners would call Maidaners zombies, Maidaners would call anti-Maidaners. But not just zombies. It was also um, slaves, Rabi. And I often like to clarify for someone who's not perfectly familiar with the, the use of this term in Ukraine, especially when used in the US. It, it can be very easily misunderstood. Um, a slave, as I came to understand the use of the term, is more akin to what we think of as like the classic Haitian notion of a zombie in that like you are a puppet. I think a puppet would be a more accurate term than like slave as a as a as a captive human being. Um so a, a slave is someone who doesn't have a soul or doesn't have a free spirit or doesn't have free will and is controlled by the outside. One of the uh, most common uses of that term I saw was a phrase um it was on stickers and all this kind of stuff called uh Rabi ne Puskait I believe. Um but it's uh it's, they don't allow slaves into heaven. Essentially, like like y- mm. you know, your soul is your metro token that lets you through the turnstile at the pearly gates, and <laughs> if you don't have one, you can't go. Um, right, and, and not a good money. And and these the fact that these terms like animal, slave, zombie, slave being puppet and and addict um, were the ter- these terms used interchangeably, and that's when it occurred to me. I was like, oh, there is like they're being used interchangeably because the meaning is common right? There's a common meaning connecting all of these, which is that you are like a spiritually vacuous person, that you lack a moral center, that you lack a spiritual center. If you lack a spiritual center, you lack spiritual guidance. And that means that you can't make reasonable decisions on your own. It means that you're like a sheep, you're a horse on the trail following the butt of the horse in front of you. Um, and, and that also kind of makes you not just, a. Uh, maybe not a bad person, but a useless person, which is kind of worse in a way. But it also makes you a dangerous person because even though you're useless to society and that you can't like stand up and act and decide to, you know, go check on your grandma or feed the neighborhood or clean up the playground, like you can't do those proactive things for the community, but you also are vulnerable to manipulation by other people. So some nefarious actor, oligarch, politician, criminal, whoever can come along and be like, hey, how about I give you some more drugs or... Twenty Crimea, or like whatever is your jam, and you just stand here, hold this gun, stand against this block, and that's literally the explanation that people gave for uprisings in the east.
0: Right, right? and Not and it's and, and it's and it's very convenient, it seems to me, to link the stigma against drug addicts or narcomani together with alcoholism mm-hmm. and a whole mess of other things. Right? Mm-hmm. Do do you see that? and now I'm trying to get out of Maidan in 2014, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm thinking chronologically. So do you see a change somehow? I mean, I want to get to Ulana Suprun and, <clears throat> and the changes in the ministry of health and public health. So when does that begin to shift the stigmatization that you describe mm-hmm. or even the discourse of, of exclusion that you describe from the civic nation? Is there, is there a turning point then for Ukraine? Does does it does it have to happen immediately, or or is it is it Suprun herself who is mm. really the charismatic force, or what? I mean, you do mention the antics of, of things like the Internet Party of Ukraine. That's an, oh another gosh. really fascinating story. But yeah. when is when does that shift? It's because it is a major paradigm shift. Um, begin mm-hmm. to, begin to happen. Do you think?
1: I'm not sure it happened. I mean, like I think there's there's a lot of ways to answer that question. Um, I think whether this tells you more about me. And my character or about the world, I think most of the answers are not that optimistic. Uh, But I I will say that the Ukrainian government, since Mm -hmm. the major political turnover in 2014, has made um, very, very necessary changes to fix a lot of their major policy problems. And um, I am as eager as, as the next person to jump on the charismatic Ulana sappo bandwagon. Like I said, we, our cat is not named Ulanka for nothing, but we, yeah. What what, what, were, what were some,
0: sorry to interrupt you, but what are okay. some of those changes for our listeners? Can it's you explain right, that?
1: Right. So, but a lot, yeah, a lot of these things really happened because of intense grassroots activism and organizing that has been pounding on the Ukrainian government's door for decades. So, you know, someone like Ulan Saprun was able to kind of help get some of these things pushed through once she came to office, but like it, it she, she cleared a path. But other people provided the drive and, and the motivation. And so I think that the credit to like the um all Ukrainian Association of People Living with HIV AIDS they i think they deserve much much more credit than anyone else for these for these fantastic changes right. so one of the things that happened um i mentioned before that from the beginning of the 2000s the global fund was paying for everything in syringe access programs and medication assisted treatment programs for opioid use disorder and people who use drugs and i mean every like they were buying the syringes they were buying the medications they were buying the light bulbs <laughs> that kept the light in the hallway, like everything. And in 2016, the Ukrainian ministry of health actually budgeted money to support medications for addictions treatment for the first time in the history of the country, which was a seat. I remember like sitting at home and like refreshing my newsfeed and just kind of being like, yeah, what? Like I actually I literally pulled up a chart, tra- like my Google translator. Cause I'm like, I can't be reading that right. I have to be making a mistake. That can't be what that verb means. Um, and uh, And so that was really, really huge. Um, and they have actually done a lot of work to expand access to that program. So I think it's important to know that in the United States, and this is this is a there's a lot of misinformation about this, but of all people who have used, um, for example, heroin in the past year, only about twenty five percent of them meet the actual clinical criteria for opioid use disorder. And we know that there are um, close to 300 I believe is the last estimate people who inject drugs in Ukraine, which is not exclusively, but overwhelmingly opioid based. Those are the the habits. Um, And if, if Ukraine is anything like the United States in its clinical manifestation of substance use disorders, we would guess, you know, maybe 125. No, no, my gosh, what is it look more like 80 ish, you know, thousand people um, were probably living with opioid use disorder in Ukraine. When I left Ukraine, there were 6,000 people receiving that medication, and it's not because it wasn't advertised or things like that. It was just like there weren't that many treatment slots. Um, it was actually eight thousand at one point, but we lost a lot of clinics in the Donbass region and in Crimea specifically. We lost eight hundred um, uh, clinic spots there, which is uh, yeah. was and, really, and a really
0: and, and, and you and you say and correct me, but Crimea had some of the best facilities right or at least once did i'll
1: say that the most wonderful and the most depressing clinic that i visited throughout all of my time doing this research were both in crimea but okay. um but but i think what's important is that there were actually several places that were that were thriving people were thriving in some of these clinics um, it's it, like truly truly some of the happiest times where, like my memories of visiting some of these clinics are so tainted by my emotion of being in that place where I'm like, I don't remember what the weather was, but in all of my memories, it was really sunny and the pothos was really green (laughs) and and it was just beautiful and happy. Um, and just like so, so, so many strong, um, sensory memories of being in that place, like the smells and the, 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 feel of things. Um, and because it was just lovely. I mean, like we were talking with physicians who would joke with us and I remember big cushy chairs and I remember patients popping in and laughing and folks bringing their kids to the clinic and talking at great, great length about like what their plans were and what they were going to do later in life. And, and when these things got shut down during Russian occupation, it was devastating. Uh, you know, I, we say that medication assisted treatment, um, Saves lives. It absolutely does. It reduces mortality among people with opioid use disorder by more than 50%. So it's absolutely asinine to say that it's right. anything other than essential and necessary. And then when you pull it away, we shouldn't be surprised when like one out of eight people at those clinics died within the subsequent months of overdose and returning to again, like leaving the, the shelter from policy. That is a safe supply in a medically supervised center where they can put pause on all of their biological processes, organize themselves, do what they need to do. And then perhaps if they want to talk about tapering off those medications, which otherwise they're able to stay on perfectly safely for their entire lives if they want to. Um, If removing them from that shelter from policy and sending them back into an unregulated, illicit drug market with no support. Like, yeah, of course, everyone overdosed. It was yeah.
0: And and so and, and what has happened in in Russia we haven't talked a lot about Russia after 2014 but what, what is the Russian position against or with regard to MAT with regard to medically assisted treatment. So what what is the problem let's mm-hmm. say.
1: So I would say that Russia I think is a really really good example for especially North Americans especially residents of the United States to kind of look at and consider as a mirror for ourselves, because Russia has taken our very worst, non-scientific, culturally based, stigmatized stereotypes about substance use and ensconced it in national policy in a very, very clear way. So currently in Russia, these two medications that are evidence-based and effective at treating opioid use disorder and, and again, save lives, like period. Um, Methadone and buprenorphine, they are both illegal for import. You cannot even bring them into the country, um, which is kind of silly too, because methadone actually is extremely useful for tons of other things besides treating treating opioid use disorder. Um, It's actually very commonly used in HIV clinics to treat um, uh, pain. And and it's actually very, very good at treating HIV-associated pain. And despite the fact that Russia has this completely out of control HIV epidemic, they don't allow that tool there. And the justification for doing so is actually a story that I hear a lot in the United States even, is that this is not treatment or recovery. This is substituting one drug for the other. Mm which right. is a fundamental right. misunderstanding of what actually I can see is happening. That. And that's, right. and that's a story, you know, I'm a medical anthropologist. And so when I, when I teach class, whether it's about cultural anthropology and gen- general like gender and race and, and all that stuff, or whether it's medical anthropology, the thing that I tell my students over and over, like, if you remember one thing from this class, know that culture is just a set of stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves in order to make sense of the world and, and move through it, right? And the idea that substance use disorder or behaviors that we might be inclined to label as substance use disorders um, get explained away. We tell a story about that that is related to character, that is related to will, um, that is connected to notions of cleanliness and dirtiness. I mean, we use those terms to talk about people in their recovery about having gotten clean. Like think about that for a second. That's extremely messed up. And and the fact that we um, tell people that moving into a safer supply and moving into a place where their risk is reduced and where, you know, like, like I think it's not wildly incorrect. Everyone's experience is different, but it's not wildly incorrect to say that methadone and buprenorphine work kind of like the patch for nicotine or even kind of like Nutrisystem for people who are trying to control their diet. It just, it just like removes executive decisions. It puts you on a, a regimen. You know, mm-hmm. and a safe regimen. So, yeah.
0: You know. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, you even mentioned, I remember listening to you describe the average American knowledge of, of addiction is coming from the wire. And, <laughs> and, 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 that's a huge problem, right? I mean, even mm-hmm. among ac- academics to mm-hmm. gather that knowledge. So, I, I mean, my, my last sort of intellectual question before we, we move on to things you might recommend and mm-hmm. research that you're conducting now is, is really about the role of the federal government.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: are, what role do you see the CDC in the United States and the Ministry of Health in Ukraine um, doing. I mean, I mean, there are all sorts of federal uh, questions now mm-hmm. in twenty twenty um, about the CDC and and COVID, but proactively, mm-hmm. especially for the opioid epidemic in particular, but also for some of the other epidemics you're describing, what, what is the role of the state
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, for Americans and Ukrainians at the very least? And you, you can mention any other countries where you see positive models.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this, this ultimately, I think, comes down to the question of like, how do you want your society to be organized? And the major difference between what the CDC is able to do um, and what the Ministry of Health in Ukraine is able to do is that the Ministry of Health in Ukraine can, to certain degrees, tell regions what to do. They can be like, this is your health system now. This is the fine. And that's really what we've seen through a lot of the primary care reform that's happened over the last few years. The CDC can't do that. The CDC can make recommendations and can offer technical support. But if the you know public health department of such and such county wants to say, nope, syringe exchanges just enable drug use and methadone is substituting one drug for the other, and we're going to use that as policy, the CDC can't stop them, right? I think... Really, what we need is um, is is really good leadership and really good grassroots work around these issues. I'm not sure that government is ever in a position to make these major cultural changes. Like, I think we need the All Ukrainian Network of People Living with HIV/AIDS to do that work. Um, I think we need, um, you know, harm reduction activists, drug users' unions in the United States, the Drug Policy Alliance, the Harm Reduction Coalition doing. That work. What we need to see from government is a recognition that a lot of the harms that people are experiencing are definitely structurally based. Um, and I think one example that I would bring in um, is uh, the Ministry of Health. I believe it's called the Ministry of Health in British Columbia in Canada right now. They have actually during COVID nineteen. This is something that they've talked about for, but at the, before, but at the beginning of the epidemic, they really pushed it through. They now allow uh, healthcare providers to prescribe prescription drugs for people who have substance use disorders but are not able or not willing to go into treatment Mm -hmm. so if if you have a methamphetamine use disorder they will prescribe you Adderall you know and if you have an opioid use disorder they will prescribe you um I believe it's it's Tramadol, perhaps, I would have to double check. But but the idea is like, if you are not willing to go into treatment, and we know that our drug market is going through waves of change, and it's totally unpredictable and extremely dangerous that like, you will die less. If you're on something that comes from Walgreens, as opposed to something that comes from the street corner. And I think that is a fundamental recognition of the fact that we are just like forcing people into unhealthy spaces, and then asking themselves to fix what are the impacts of huge social problems on their own? And that's just not not realistic.
0: Yeah, I mean, not to mention neoliberal regimes where you're you're <laughs> simply out, you're simply on your own, and right. you you're you're to blame for your behavior. And right. good, good good luck to you.
1: Right, and, so, and as a scientific yeah. advisor, sometimes I do get calls from folks at, at government agencies who ask, like, "Hey, what are we missing? What's the big thing? What's the big thing happening?" Like, we've done methadone, we've done naloxone, the drug that reverses overdoses, like we're pushing all this stuff. What are we missing? What's out there? What's the new innovation? And I was like, man, you want to know what's really stopping overdose? It's things that are currently illegal under federal law. It's drug checking, it's using technology to help people know what's in the drugs that they buy. And it's safe consumption sites, which is allowing people to use in safe environments where overdose deaths have been reduced to zero. And and the thing is, is both of those are also shelters from policy. The real answer is to change policy, but insofar as we're going to continue to allow this drug market to be unregulated and impose right. super protections, then you have to have those things. And that's, that can be very disappointing for someone in the federal government to hear that our best tools are things that they cannot advocate for because
0: yeah. and, of and, law.
1: and and, and on, on that
0: note, since you mentioned the magic word regulation, mm-hmm. um, could you recommend perhaps some other works by anthropologists and talk a little in a few minutes, no more about mm. your current re- current research project?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So so uh, one book that I would really recommend for folks that are interested in um, the, like I call the addiction imaginary in the United States would be uh, Kim Su's book, Getting Wrecked. It was recently published from the University of California Press. She is a double doc, a PhD anthropologist and um, addiction um, Physician. She trained under Arthur Kleinman at Harvard. Uh, She's just so good at what she does. And then there is another double doc anthropologist physician from NYU named Helena Hansen. Helena Hansen has influenced my research more than probably anyone else has um, in the last few years. She's currently working on a book called White Opioids, and she has managed to do the work of explaining what we're seeing in the United States around race and the opioid crisis. Um, I think it's a great pair with um, Michelle Alexander's uh, new Jim Crow, because Michelle Alexander talks about how we have all of these race neutral criminal justice policies that produce fundamentally racist outcomes. And Helena Hansen is sharing about how we have race neutral drug policies and medical policies, like specifically policies around methadone and buprenorphine that produce inherently racist outcomes. That book will be out um, within the next year, I believe. And then I want to make one last plug for Emily Channel Justice, who has done an extraordinary amount of ethnographic work around My dad was embedded with radical left student groups while she was there. I know she's currently working on a book project. I, would, I put in a Google alert for that woman because her work is amazing, and I'm so excited to see it when it comes out.
0: Excellent. Yeah. And Emily is also at the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute, so uh, we'll tag her and we'll um, we'll make sure that we get her book, too. But Mm -hmm. I want to congratulate you, Jennifer, on a wonderful um, research project and a marvelous book with Cornell University Press. Uh, We've been talking with Professor Jennifer Carroll, who is an assistant professor of anthropology at Elon University, North Carolina, and an adjunct assistant professor of medicine at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. I'm Stephen Siegel, your host here at the New Books Network, and her book is called Narcomania or Narcomania, Drugs, HIV, and Citizenship in Ukraine, Cornell University Press, 2019. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. This was a lot of fun.